for just about everything for the outdoors, go to MidwayUSA.com. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tacova store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tacovas.com. that's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com, and don't go gently, y'all. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunting, brought to you by AllPros.com. With your host, elk hunting coach Joe Gilly. You want to hunt elk? They live to hunt elk. Their goal is to share with you what they have learned grinding it out for over 35 seasons doing what they love. So come on into camp and set a spell. Welcome to Blue Collar Elk Hunters. Welcome, everybody. I'm Joe Gillia, and this is our Insights Edition of Blue Collar Elk Hunting, where we want to talk and learn about all things elk. On today's special edition, look, it doesn't matter if this year will be your first, your fifth, or your tenth trip. If you're coming to hunt DIY in the West this season, and you're in your 20s, your 30s, your 40s, shoot, look, y'all, I don't care what age you are, our next guest will either be your motivation for this coming season or he will be that hunter out there that you should be very afraid of. Because at the age of 66, Bob the Billy Go Collins is a beast in the mountains and comes with a load of experience to share with anyone of any age planning to hunt elk in the mountains of the West this year. And don't let this upstate New York accent fool you, y'all. This here is an elk hunter. Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Nice to be here. Uh, yeah, man. I, I mean, we talked the other day and um, it, come to find out that you're actually just a few miles away from my heritage in the Buffalo area, which I thought was really cool. Correct. Yeah. So, and, and the other thing was, is that you're, I just thought the reason that we wanted to do this was for multiple things. Um, number one, I wanted people because we have so many people that are coming from back East or the Midwest, or they're coming from areas that they are not in elk States. And a lot of times they're afraid to pull that trigger or they're afraid of, getting out here and finding out where it's just so intimidating and and that and that's a fact that that's a fact that can happen oh yes yes it is and so what i wanted from you bob was i want you're somebody that is going to bring an experience level and you're going to bring firsthand knowledge of what that was like and where you're at now because you've got a lot of years under your belt man and i and <laughs> they don't call you the billy goat for 
no reason. I mean, you're out here climbing these mountains of Colorado, Montana, and exactly. and getting it done. So I think this is some quality stuff to be able to uh, share with our listeners. So before we get going, just so they know a little bit about you, tell them a little bit about yourself. Well, my name is Bob, a.k.a. the Billy Goat Collins. I'm 66. I got 26 years of elk hunting experience. I've harvested them with a recurve, compound, and muzzleloader all in the month of September. Um, my favorite way to hunt elk is DIY. I like getting it done that way. It's what motivates me. It's what keeps me young. Uh, otherwise, it'd be a couch potato and weigh 300 pounds probably. <laughs> so let me ask you this. You're 66 now. How old were you when you first hit the mountains, Bob? Oh, geez. 1989 would have made me 39. 39, right? 39, 34. So you're, you're getting ready to punch 30 years of doing this, right? Yeah. Yeah. I've been, yeah, it's been 31 years. I've been, this is my first elk trip. And like I said, I've only missed uh, five years out of the 31 so far. <laughs> out of life, things happen, you know? Well, yeah, absolutely, man. I, and you know, I want everybody to get an idea of exactly how passionate you are about elk hunting because you and I have had a conversation before and you told me a story that your wife is still shaking her head about. It takes us 30 hours of straight driving to get from where we here in uh, Western New York out to Colorado where one of our favorite places to hunt is. So it's six, 30 hours out, 30 hours back, that's 60 hours in a car. We got out there and we hunted for three days. That's all I had to hunt. And basically, you got about approximately 12 hours, just a little over 12 hours of daylight at that time of year to hunt. So we hunted for 36 hours and traveled for 60. But, hey, I, I would have missed that year. and I, I wouldn't have missed it. Not if I can help it. Uh, no, I totally get it, man. And with all of these years that you have, and I imagine after 20 some years of hunting elk, some of those things start to blend together a little bit, but I imagine nothing is probably in your memory more than that first year. And I want you to think about that first DIY hunt, because here's where a lot of our listeners struggle right now is that they've done all this stuff. They've done all this prep. They've gotten everything ready. They've done the physical fitness. They've done all the, they've done all the shooting. Then they show up. I mean, they've done e-scouting if they haven't had a chance to to get there. And back when you did this 20 some years ago, e-scouting wasn't even an option, right? So, you know, when you showed up, what was the sticker shock like? I mean, when you actually got to camp and looked around, and, and there's not only me that has this sticker shock. I've taken approximately, I think, about 10 guys out there. Uh-huh. Uh, and only one that had elk hunting experience before. And everybody is overwhelmed by the size and the immensity of the mountains. Right. That, that's the biggest thing. Everybody, their first impression is like, wow, what did I get myself into? Topographical maps don't do them justice. Google Earth doesn't do it justice. It, 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 it's something that your feet, pictures don't do it justice. Boots on the ground is the only thing that does it justice. No, absolutely, man. So let me ask you, when you guys get there and they're overwhelmed like that, where do they even begin 
finding elk. I mean, what was that mental process? I mean, I, I know what I do, but I'm somebody that's, I've been around elk ever since I was 19 years old. And I've been in the woods ever since I was knee high to a grasshopper. So I'm not uncomfortable in the woods at all. And, but for some of these guys coming out, when they see that, what is that mental process of where do I start? That, that's a tough one, Joe, because you're so overwhelmed to start with. But if, if you've got yourself a game plan and if you've done some e-scouting or you even, even with just topographical maps, you can get a kind of lay of the land and hopefully you've talked to a few people to get an idea of where you should be able to find out to start with, what to look for. You know, uh, me, I, I, I've read a ton of articles, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and so I had a, a little bit of an idea, but to find those spots, on the mountain took some boots on the ground. It really did. I, I had learned to pick apart the ground and, and find where the elk were on the mountain, how far up the mountain, how far down, you know, and, and this, the, uh, the area I was hunting was 15 miles long of area where the elk could be. And then it also had two main branches that branched off of that. So you've got a huge amount of territory to start covering. And that was basically it. We just put the boots on the ground and started finding certain areas that were consistently finding elk sign in. And what were those certain areas like? I mean, what what type of features were you looking for, Bob? Well, we were looking for areas that hold green grass. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we always would find them kind of on the north face um, where, where you've got your lodge full of pines. Uh, there would normally be a creek on that side, and there would always be an area that's protected from the sun because most of the uh, south facing slopes had sagebrush and the sagebrush and there was just no grass. Mm-hmm. So that's where we find most of the sign. And, you know, so we started hitting these bigger and bigger, find the bigger bowls that had this kind of large uh, pole pine from the north and the, you know, a little stream. It, and it don't take much, much uh, moisture to get grass to grow down through those areas. And that's where we, we find all the elk. Yeah. So food, moisture, food, yep. water, right? Um, water and shelter, all, all one of those convenient locations. So you guys basically, if you really, I mean, from what you're telling me, you guys headed down, you guys headed down into bowls, you headed down into basins, you headed down into creeks, canyons, um, drainages, and the bottom areas where it was shaded, where there was moisture to begin your search. Correct. And, and we also, we, the first thing we did too is, is I've always been, I've hunted the Adirondacks a lot when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And, and there's basically, it's, it's nothing but woods with a few trails. So mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to get lost. So we, first thing I always have always done is get off the, get off the main trails, side hill it, side hill it, cross, go cross country, you know, mm-hmm. um, just, just, just go for it. The different spots that look good, even though you've got to walk aways. No, I, I think that's huge. You just said something that I, I really want everybody to, to listen to that because you said that you were not afraid of getting lost. And I, and I, I want people to understand how important that lack of fear. Now, all of us need to have respect for the woods that were out there, but you know, being able to get off the beaten path is not something everybody can do. There are tons of people out there that will stay to the security of that trail. And, 
And you say that that was a big game changer for you not doing. Oh yeah, it definitely, you know, the, the further I got away from the trail, the more elk I signed and elk I ran into, um, from the very first trip I made out there, um, <laughs> having that background of, of, uh, being able to read a topographical map and, and a compass. Mm-hmm. If I know where my starting point is on that map and I've got a compass, I'm not afraid to go anywhere. And so I think I, that's where a lot of guys make a mistake is, you know, that's that maybe old school, mm-hmm. but it doesn't go out of style. Well, okay. So are you still old school or have you changed your tool set? I, Does I, it include- I've got, yeah. yes, I've got base map. My partner's got Onyx, mm-hmm. but I've always got my paper copy of my topo map that's laminated and my compass. I still rely on them on, on a daily basis when I'm out there. So I, I absolutely do. I, I'm, I'm like you because actually there, there's something that um, GPS is having is a thing called a battery. And, <laughs> you know, I mean, you can only carry so many extra batteries and I hate the idea, especially if I end up spending the night out there ending up in a situation where I don't have it. So a lot of times I will get a reading I'll get a directional reading off of my GPS and I'm not turning it off, but I'm not using screen time. Basically. I mean, it can run a long time as long as you don't have screen time uh, on it or the lights on, or, or you're looking at it physically and just put that bearing on a, on a compass and go with it. And I mean, it works great like that. And what do you find different between your topo map and let's say Onyx or base map? Well, the ability to zoom in with, with, with your Onyx or your base map is huge, you know. Um, the ability to mark pins, I mean, you can mark your map up. It's not quite as, as accurate, you know. Mm-hmm. I mean, with, with my base map, I, I drop a pin right where I'm standing. You know, it, it's really easy. On You know, if you got your topo map, you, you're pretty sure about where you're at, unless you've got an altimeter or something, that, you know, so you can gauge the actual elevation. Right. You know, you're... you're kind of there's a little bit of guesswork in there so is there any benefit over your topo over your base map it doesn't battery don't run out (laughs) (laughs) and and it's funny you say that because last year in montana i threw my phone in my pack Mm -hmm. we had it back in to do our first diy in this area well we got back that night we got camp set up that night and i pulled out my phone so i could take a picture and somehow it got turned on and it was down to one percent (laughs) <laughs> so for the be- next three days i had no phone no battery wow. well yeah absolutely man you had a partner that did though right yes my, yeah. my partner had his onyx so you know we were still good as far as that goes right but what but if you were alone yeah if i was by myself we'd split up yep you know no, absolutely. That's why I actually, I, I suggest to people too. I mean, now they come out with um, those, uh, you know, little charging bars that are lightweight that can charge a phone two, three times um, as a backup in your pack that, because now, I mean, it used to be that your phone was a phone. I mean, you had your phone, <laughs> you had a camera, you had a GPS, you had a flashlight, and you had all of these, you had a, a video cam recorder, and now phones can pretty much do all of those. So, you know, for you, exactly. for you to take a little charger and throw it in your pack, that's nothing as compared to all the other stuff that you used to carry. So um, I, I think that's big, but you know what, I, the thing I was pointing at 
on the on the topo maps versus versus onyx or um or base map is that you can look on that onyx and you can look at an area to cross from let's say over one saddle into another area and you look at it and you're like man oh that looks good right there and then you show up to go over it and man you're like that freaking topo lied to me man it's not well, you know <laughs> Yeah, because, you know, a lot of those lines are be close together, but there'll be ways up yes. in some spots, but other spots, it's a rock wall, you know? Yep. There is not the detail. You you know, you don't get the detail. You can't zoom in and zoom out. You know, you can't rotate it. Well, you can rotate it, but it don't do you much good. Yeah. And, but you can you can buy those topo maps of an area to a scale that are much better with the topo lines and actually find benches or um, those finger ridges a lot easier, better than you can on on our GPS phone apps. Well, what I have done is, in the past is also taking the topo, your regular topo map and, and blowing it up mm -hmm. in, into a, and then had that little section uh that we were going to be hunting laminated so it doesn't get all destroyed in your pack. Right. And that's helped too. Now, you said that you start off down there with now, and, and we're going back to the finding elk because really yep. that's, that's a, a real big focus because I know there's so many guys that are real nervous when they get there, like, okay, where do I go? And, and we've done podcasts and we have a whole series on finding elk, but I love listening to the perspective of somebody that landed there with boots on the ground. So you guys were there, you go down, you found the water or those drainages, you found those North areas with the grass and a lot of guys would go, okay, I'm seeing track. We're seeing sign in this area and they're just going to stick there and sit water or they're going to sit grass. We're going to do something like that. What did you do with it? Once you found those areas where you found sign in those bottoms? Well, I'm a lot like you, Joe. I like to make things happen. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm not, if I wanted to, tree stand hunt i'd stay here in new york and deer hunt but that's not why i'm out there i'm out there for a different experience mm -hmm. i want to get there i want to get there and, and and get them fired up right you know at least or at least call them in, you know feel i had some some influence over that elk enough to make him want to come find me so you know i started uh when i first got out there i i, I doodled my butt off and you know it took me a few years and to start breaking down the different parts of the season, you know, mm -hmm. um, know when to bugle and when not to bugle, you know, when to just cow call, uh, you know, early season, you know, it's all hit or miss with early season bugling. Um, kind of, a, it, was a, it was a long learning curve for me because I had nobody really to, to teach me. The only time I had schooling was out there in the elk woods. Right. So, you know, each year I learn a little more. When was a better time, you know, uh, one year I hit it just right. And they were just going crazy on September 3rd, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I, I found that, you know, when, the, when they're in the, that kind of, that first cow comes to eat, well, you can get away with just about anything compared to, you know, when there's nothing going on and they're, they're shut down, it's too hot, or they're just, they're just not fired up yet. You know, you, you had, I learned to tailor my calling to, the mood of the elk. Absolutely. So, With that learning curve, what was the turning point for you? What was the, the aha moment that, 
has developed your strategy or your philosophy or or your ability to adapt now and in in Man, I cannot tell people enough. You have to be ready to adapt you know, when you're elk hunting because the situation could be different from today to tomorrow. But, right. but for you, what are those takeaways that you've gained, those little tidbits, those little tips that you've gained for finding elk now or locating or um, in your experience? Well, like you said, adapt. And that's my, that's my, has become my mantra out there, adapt and overcome. Mm-hmm. You know, read the situation, read what the elk are giving you and, 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 and work on that, that mindset, wherever the elk are giving you. Um, like I said, once I started putting this little piece together and that little piece together that the elk are doing, mm-hmm. um, you know, by seeing repeating patterns over the years, you know, I started putting pieces of the puzzle and it took me without exaggeration. It took me nine years before I killed my first elk. It was a recurve. Mm-hmm. I built a recurve. I I took up my recurve out there for like four years. I hunted with a compound before that. And I finally decided that I built my own recurve and I, I was able fortunate enough to take one with my recurve. And that was uh, that's still one of my best experiences I've had. But I, that was kind of the aha moment when I actually got that bull to commit, saying the right things to him, learning how to push his buttons, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And, and that, and that's, you know, we, 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 you hear people, you know how it is. You know all the names out there. They do a great job of telling you how to call and give you the calls and what they mean. But do you get out there and actually start working an elk and see what his mood is? Mm-hmm. It, it, you know, that's, that's, that's the key is learning how to, to read their mood. And then you, once you read their mood, you can respond to get them to respond. Now, let me ask you, so that I understand, do you generally just hunt the first part of the season? Do you hunt the whole season? Are you hunting the middle, the end? I've hunted whole season, you know, not at any one point. Mm-hmm. But when I first started hunting, I was hunting the, the, the very beginning of season because vacation days are important. So I had that Labor Day right there. Right. So I had an added day. So mm-hmm. to me, that was important. To I'd rather be out there hunting another day than maybe the best week. But to me, it was just another day out there to me, which was important because it's, for me, it's just not elk hunting. It's the whole experience. Right. It's, 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 it's my favorite vacation. I get to hunt, I get to fish, I get to camp, I get to hike, I get to see all the beautiful country. I mean, how can you beat that, Joe? Oh, no. (laughs) So that being said, you want to be out there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, with that being said, the first probably 12 years, 12, 15 years, we hunted the first week just for that reason. Mm -hmm. But since then, you know, got you and just a few thousand other people because they think the same way. They want that extra day. Right. So, right. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then we 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 evolved and and now we are more towards the middle of the end of the season. You know, now I'm at a point in my life where I can take more time. Right. So last few years, we've been out there like two weeks. We, we've kind of hit the middle and the end and it's been more productive for us. Um, we've had to change up our hunting style mm-hmm. because the elk are in a different mood, you know, okay, their, so let's, their let's, mindset's different. Let's take all of that because you, you just said a few things there in that you you said that you were able to change your hunting. It was a little bit different. It was a little bit better for you at that time because the mindset was different. It, explain that. 
early season, most of the time the elk are not fired up. I mean, you might get one or two, you know, uh, one day that they seem like the woods exploding, but most of the time they're pretty quiet. Uh, when you did get them to respond, most time the bulls were in their little their bedrooms, I call them, where they kind of shack up for a little while, and it's like their little little territory. Right. And then once you get to the middle, they seem to start moving quite a bit. Uh, and and when would you say the middle is for you? I'm, I I know what I around the tenth. Right. Okay. Tenth, twelfth, right in that area. They seem to start moving more. The bulls. Um, the bigger bulls start moving in too. Um, I thought it was weird because uh, when I was in the early part of the season, I'd see these little raghorns chasing cows around, and you know, like, <laughs> little raghorn would have ten cows, and I'm going, if "This is the biggest bull in this hill. I, I need to find a better a better pot spot to hunt." You know, <laughs> but what what really tripped that trigger was the fact that. I was hunting this side hill and I came across this wow. It was early season. So I got a big old stick and started splashing, 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 making a ruckus and just making a few little. Mm-hmm. Well, this bull let out a scream that curled the hair on my head. You know, it was, it was incredible. Uh-huh. And from that point on, I realized that these big bulls are smart they don't run their tails off at the beginning of the season. Absolutely. You got to go and hunt them differently than, than you do the middle. Once they, once the cows start coming in the heat and they start, they start moving. Mm-hmm. Now they start getting the big bulls into with the cows. And so that, that there's a transition area there makes it different. You know, it, it, it's, it's the next part of the rut. And so I really enjoyed later part of the rut now because you're, you're hunting the bigger bulls to me. They're, actually easier to hunt yeah. only for a simple fact that they're distracted by cows they're distracted by other bulls um it's easier for me to get underneath their skin you know get in their head because you can play i call mind games with them you know mm-hmm. it's uh one of my favorite favorite tricks is is you know because i always hunt with a partner for the most part i i, I don't i'm not big on challenging bulls mm-hmm. bird bulls mm-hmm. but what i do like to do is get in close when I get in close, I make a few little wimpy bugles, just, just, you know? Mm-hmm. And then, and then what I'll do is I'll start making a cow call, but like a distressed cow call, you know, where she's just absolutely being, you know, harassed by this little bull. It sounds kind of like this. Then I'll run. I'll just, I'll, I'll take a stick. I'll run through the woods. Mm-hmm. Back and forth, like a like a like like a like a cowboy trying to you know um, what do they call it uh, when they doing their cows you know the cotton cows yeah, you yeah. Know? okay all right and it's like I'm I'm trying to cut her off keep her from going back to the bull you know and I've had more bulls come charging in blindly like that than with any other challenge bugle or anything else. So basically, so let's, let's, let's review this because basically what you're saying is, and this is a great nugget for you guys out there listening, because he's talking about an immature bull that's trying to keep a cow with him because you we're going in that transition phase. It's, it's, it's um, that transition from early season to rut and it's uh you've got those young bulls that, <laughs> and it's funny, Bob, I always like to, I always think of these, 
old mature bulls as like my grandma during the strawberry picking season, she would get all of us young kids to go out there and pick all the strawberries and bring the whole basket to her. And then she takes the basket. Right. (laughs) 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 And I mean, brilliant, man. And just like these Uh bulls, they do the same thing. They let these young guys round up these cows and they just stay off in the wings until you start hearing some bulls screaming because something comes in heat, you know, and then boom, they're in there and they, you know, thanks for rounding them up for me. Right. So what you're talking about and, and this strategy that you're talking about is, is making it sound like a cow that's being harassed by that would actually like to leave this young guy. And he's trying to keep her cut, trying to work his butt off to keep that cow from going to a bigger bull. Exactly. And, and, you know, and, and that's, and it, you know, you, you plan that seed, like you guys said, paint a picture, you paint that picture in that mm-hmm. bull's head. There's a young immature bull that's just harassing the crap out of it. And he's not going to put up with that, you know? So he, he charges in there blindly because he thinks that's another bull. You, you, you've done push his button. And that's what I like to do. So, and look, you, here's something that you're doing that, that I've tried to teach a lot of people and tried to get that mindset. Like you were talking about earlier, a lot of people and everybody watches and listens to how people go from ridge to ridge, screaming, challenging, and the different things. But what you were just talking about, the scenario that you were talking about has nothing to do with engaging a target bull. It has to do with putting on your own show and, and, actually not talking to the target bull it's right it's, you're actually ignoring him ignoring absolutely man and putting on that scenario that makes him think and this is something that they're not used to having happen out there during the hunting season i mean a lot of these bulls get called in by hunters time after time you know even when they do do the challenge or if it is a cow call and and how many times are a lot of those scenarios busted because either somebody wasn't patient enough or they moved too soon or they made a wrong move when they were coming in so basically that bull's been educated to that style of call right right and exactly what, and what you're talking about is not the same old rodeo ignoring and creating your own scenario that so that was that was very awesome i i, I caught a picture of you running around in the woods with a stick banging trees stomping and making that you know harass cow sound and i'm loving it man oh I, I, and oh and it and that and that's the one thing that i like about elk hunting mm-hmm. you can make noise you don't have to be stealthy, you know. You can get out there and make noise, and 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 it's acceptable, you know. <laughs> hey, I'm your old Billy Goat. I ain't quiet, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so, okay, so there, there's one example. That's that's one of your favorite techniques. Are there any others? Well, if it's earlier season, you'll find them. Like I said, you'll find they got a bedroom, uh, and they'll just sit there and they'll bugle their butts off in that one location. And you can sneak in on those guys and you, I get in there and I'll engage those, those bulls you can engage because they've, they've got, you get all of a sudden you come to an area, a little bench or something. Mm-hmm. And it looks like every tree has been blown up. There's no bark left. Man, my heart starts pumping. Even though, even though I may not even heard one, they were there when he was right there at the moment, mm-hmm. but I hit that spot. I immediately stop and I start raking and then I'll bugle break and bugle and more than likely he's still around if he hasn't already you know given away his location and we moved in on him and uh that's that that's a great one too because but you can't 
with that one, you, you want to sound small, you want to intimidate them. Sure. Again, you, you still want to small, sound like a smaller bull. You don't take a, you know, uh, a stick that's, you know, six inch diameter and, and start raking a, a, a 10 inch log pole pine, you know, mm-hmm. take a small branch, small tree, you know, and, you know, like I said, you're painting that picture in that bull's head. This is a smaller bull that just kind of moved into his territory a little bit and he's not going to put up with it, you know? Yeah, especially early season, man, because, you know, when you have that bull that's up there just bugling like that, he's just advertising. He's just advertising. He's in the area. He's advertising to the cow, yep. advertising to the other bulls. Yep. And, and now all of them are setting up their pecking order. So when you go up there and you get in there and you start sounding like a small bull and start doing some raking, because I think, I think raking really works best to me in that first half of the season and when yes. the bulls are measuring each other. So mm-hmm. you've basically gone in and advertised, well, oh, okay, I'm here too. So if you want to see who your competition is, you better come check it out. And, and I'm curious, how many of those bulls that you've worked like that came in silent rather than talking? I'd say about 50% of them. Yeah. Okay. About half of them come in silent. Um, most of the time it, it, when they come in silent, they're normally a smaller bull, mm-hmm. but that's not always the case. That's not always the case. On average, I'd say they're, they're smaller bulls. Not that they're a bad bull. I shoot them in a heartbeat, you know, that's what I'm there for. But, um, for the most part, the, the smaller bulls are already kind of intimidated. So they're, you know, they're, they're not, uh, they're not bold, you know? So I know, or I would go off how, how, you know, when you have a bull that's sounding off like that from his bed and, and a lot of times during the day, they're just being real lazy. They're just kind of sounding off, letting off, you know, know where they're at. How close do you like to get before you start putting on a scenario? Uh, if I can get within probably a hundred, 150 yards, mm-hmm. you know, when I first start finding, if I'm doing, trying to do the ninja sneak in there to get on them, when I start finding the first trees that he's rubbed, you know, the first fresh sign, that's where I'll stop normally. If I've got good shooting lanes, you know, uh, cover, stuff like that, you know, it depends on what the, the terrain looks like. Absolutely. Good call, man. Yeah. Because, I mean, it it's not going to do any good to set up in a place where you don't have a great location for setup because you're setting yourself up for failure then, right? And that's one of the biggest things I, you know, like I said, I've taken probably 10 guys out there and only one of them had elk hunting experience before I took them out there. And that's one of the biggest problems I've had getting guys to set up where they've got good shooting lanes. Everybody's a whitetail hunter. They, they, they want to stay hidden. And, you know, and that's, that's my biggest complaint because we've lost more bulls because they couldn't get shot because they were behind a pine tree. You know, they, 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 there was too much brush in front of them instead of getting on the other side of the brush where they had shooting lanes, you know, they set that, themselves that, up for failure. Yep. Exactly. And that, and then like I said, and that's probably, we, like I said, that's the number one mistake we, I've had guys make, even though I tell them, move up, move up, you know, get where you can see good. A little story here, Joe. Okay. Shoot, man. The last okay. bull I shot, I told the guy, go up the hill. Well, about, I don't know, it looked like about 80 yards, somewhere in the area. I said, this bull, we got going. He's, he's going to come around and stay above us because the wind was going up so get up there so you're above me you got shooting lanes when he when he circles you should be good to go well the, i see the bull he's up there he's circling you know this is about 20 minutes after i sent my buddy up there mm-hmm. well, next thing i know the bull's coming down the hill 
how come Jim didn't shoot? I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting. Nothing, nothing, nothing. The next thing, oh, I got this bull at 20 yards. So I drill him. The bull takes off. I scream at him, you know, with my bugle. And I'm sitting there, I'm, I'm shaking. You know, it takes me a couple minutes to get to my breath. I go, find Jim, Jim. I just shot a bull. He goes, what bull? Mm, what bull? You didn't see that bull walk through that opening? He goes, I go, where were you sitting? He takes me where he's sitting. He was sitting behind two little pine trees. Well, Jim, how are you going to get a shot behind these two little pine trees? He says, well, I was hoping they'd come out here. Oh, it's like, oh, my God. You know, you lost a chance of the bull. You didn't even see the bull that passed within probably 40 yards of you. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's like, you know, it, it, that's one thing that, you know, it, it irritates me because I know what looks like a good spot. And, you know, and I try pointing it out to the guys. You know, this this is kind of what you want to see. You want to see these these nice shooting lakes. This is a good spot to set up, you know, if we were to encounter a bull here, you know. So I try to put that, paint that picture in their head. What to be looking for when, when the scenario does arrive that we do need to get shots. And that's that's been a tough one to, to get through to these the guys that are mainly white tail hunters. I, I try to explain to people it's kind of like this. I'd like to be in an area if it was optimum. If my effective shooting range is 30 yards, if it's 35 yards, if it's 40 yards, whatever my optimum shooting range is, if I had the perfect situation, I would have a screened semicircle in front of me out to that range in which it acts as a screen where an elk could not see me until they came through that screen, through whatever um, gap right. there was in that screen. Um, right. if, if I had nothing but perfect open area with something behind me to break up my silhouette with that screen at that optimum shooting range so that they had to step through that, then I'd be fine with that. Now in the woods, that doesn't happen because we're going to have other trees that are going to exist in there. But I still want that to where that animal is not able to see. That's what I call a tight setup where that animal mm -hmm. is not able to see me until they come into my effective shooting range. Now, if that means that I have a, uh, a diagonal, a V of brush in front of me so that it's going out and getting wider, but I have a great shooting lane to the left. I have a great shooting lane to the right that that has, that that bull has to step through in my effective range. That again is an optimum setup for me because it's forcing that animal to come into an area where they cannot visually check until they get within my shooting range. Right. Yep, so exactly. It's, it's a hard thing to sell to some people because most people always want to see an elk and they want to see it out there to a hundred yards or 150 yards, you know, and see that elk coming into them, which is great for seeing elk. But I've said time and time again, it's not so great for killing elk. Like one guy I took out there, you know, we, we split up and he went his way and I went my way. We were out there hunting. He told me about all the elk he saw. Uh -huh. well, how many shots did you have? Well, none. They were a quarter mile away. Oh, Robert, that, that, what, you know, it's nice to see them when we're out there, but I had elk at 30 yards. I couldn't get a shot, but I had them within range. To me, that's more important to see one at 30 yards than 30 at 400. Absolutely. 
<laughs> yeah. So let me ask you, Bob, I'm going to, I'm going to keep stepping back, man, because I'm really trying to help our listeners that are, that are going to have to find those elk. You get out and you're in the morning and let's say that you've gone to an area, um, you've gone down uh, to an area that has water, has good grass, and you've checked it. You haven't had any responses from an animal um, at that time. What are you thinking in your head? How are you going to work the rest of the morning? Where are you going to go? Well, if, if we didn't hear, you know, any kind of bugles at night, mm-hmm. you know, some place we, we can't, you can hear them someplace. Mm-hmm. I mean, because we don't want to be messing, messing them up at night, even though I've had them walk through camp at times, you know. But um, if they're, if, you know, we're, if the sign's there, most of the time it'd be soft calls. It'll be, you know, uh, just something to try to trigger a response. Mm-hmm. Uh, we'll slow and, slow and steady, you know, take our time from between setups to, uh, see if anything does come in quietly and just keep pushing until we, you know, we find a better or worse area, you know, and, and readjust constantly. Are you staying in the bottom? Are you going to the top of the nearest ridge? Well, you more side, what, what, I, what I have found is because most of the places I've hunted that hunt, there's normally a trail at the top mm-hmm. and a trail at the bottom of these drainages. And the elk are in that middle third of that the hill. You know, um, it's typically there's anywhere from 1500 to 2500 feet elevation change between the bottom and the top. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's that middle third of that mountain where they seem to concentrate. Uh, or, you know, that's where I find most of them, uh, because that's basically you're off the trail. Guys only get a quarter mile off the trail, you know, right. uh, that's where I seem to find the most sign, the most fresh sign. That's where they're doing the most bedding. You know, that's where the most active wallows are going to be. Uh, as far as the feed goes, they, they feed all over the mountain, wherever the grass is greenest, you know? Right. So. Yeah. Depending on the type of year, right? Yeah. So, so we, we cross hill it and keep hitting the middle third and hitting those pockets like that. Awesome. And, and now, if I remember correctly, I think you said that most of your hunting was in Colorado. Yes. And Colorado is not, it's not easy country. I mean, I don't, I don't know that it's, I've never been to Idaho, but I got some buddies out there that say that Idaho is like, you know, especially North Idaho is just, there's no, 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 nothing flat whatsoever they swear (laughs) by, you know, but Colorado has a lot of up and down up there. And like you said, you said a change of, you said 2,500 feet from the bottom up to the top. That's, that's a heck of a steep booger depending on how far, you know, that's going. Right. It is. And, 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 the one thing about Colorado, that, that 2,500 feet of elevation change, it's not over a long distance. It's a short, mm-hmm. mileage-wise, it's short. You know, we were out in Montana. We had the same 2,500 feet elevation change we were hunting, but it was over a mile or two miles mm-hmm. as opposed to a half a mile, you know, three-quarters of a mile. Uh, you know, Colorado, where we find the elk, it, it, it's, it's steep and it's rough. I mean, but that's the place where their, their sanctuary is at because that's where they're not being harassed, bottom line. Mm-hmm. And so that's where you've had the most success. Correct. Yeah. That, and, and you know, those steep areas, you know, you're going to find little benches in those steep areas and, you know, you're going to find some food. You're going to find wallows in those, little, in those areas. And, uh, you know, it, and it's always dark timber, you know? 
Yeah. And especially, you know, like when you were talking about the third, uh, that would be that upper third, you know, it's about a third of the way down from the top, about two thirds of the way up from the bottom. Mm -hmm. Um, Or even, you know, like you said, if you find those benches, if you find those areas, those little flat places that are, you know, up there on those sides where they can bed down, or even if there's a spring of some kind or a wallow that forms in there because of the type of terrain it is, well, that's that's optimum area, man, for those animals. Um, it is, and a lot, a lot of these areas to it, I found that what happens a lot of these bigger uh, pine trees will tip over, and that actually creates like a little, a uh, little flash spot where the root ball and everything came up, and there's beds in those like all the time. Oh, fallen trees where dirt has gathered and ended up creating. Well, it actually, the, the root comes up and, and, and basically when it, that tree rips out, it actually almost leaves like a little flat spot right there and, and the elk turn over right in the beds. When I'm doing my DIYs, there's been times like I camp right in one of those spots because I didn't want to leave the area, you know? Uh-huh. So there's actually, there are actually flat spots in, in, even in the really steep stuff. I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about that before ever. You know, and I see it all the time, especially you get those, you know, on those sides where you have, you can have a wet season, get a wind shear and it topples those giant trees and you end up with a a giant, what what I call root wall. Mm -hmm. I've also found that um, where you got those big trees a lot of times and they they decay down to the point where they're almost like uh, mulch Mm -hmm. that else will will dig out and, and beds and they also have dry wallows in them things too. You want to tell them what a dry wallow is? Basically, it, it, all the, the bull does is he, he'll urinate right there in, in those yep. uh, wood chips, or even if, it, even if it's just dirt. I mean, you know, sometimes there, there's not a spring nearby, and they will actually urinate, dig the dirt up and urinate, or the, the mulch and urinate right there, and then roll in it. And, and you'll yeah. go, man. We call them we call them piss wallows here, but I okay. Mean, well, I, <laughs> I call them dry wallows, but it's yeah. you know, it, it just because there's, there's no mass amounts of water like you normally see in a normal Absolutely. wallow. And they will roll in that stuff, and they will get ranked, man. They'll get dirty. Oh yeah, they will. Yeah, you get downwind of them, you know where it's at. Exactly where they're at, man. Like that. No, those are those are tremendous tips. Now let me ask you, because you say you're talking about hunting Colorado and. You know, when you talk DIY, you're almost anymore. When you talk DIY, you're almost getting to the point where you only talk about Colorado. And I'm not sure. I hope that continues to last so that people can be able to hunt. Um, but, you know, because it is getting to be one of the last places where you can get over the counter tags, it's also extremely crowded. Have you seen a huge change, you know, oh, right. in the last 20 years of people in the woods? Oh, big time. Uh, when I first started going out there, I hardly ever run into a hunter. I mean, if I did, it was normally on the trail or the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, now it's gotten to the point where, you know, there'll be a dozen vehicles parked there, you know, on the trailhead. Mm-hmm. You know, before, like I said, it, it, we saw a person or two, and, you know, and, and once we got down a half mile down the trail, we never ran into anybody. Now we're running, to, you know, we're running to people three, four miles back in, you know which we never used to do. So has that changed things for you, Bob? I mean, has it changed any of your tactics or where you're going or how you're finding the elk now? No. uh, To me, it's actually helped because it's kind of concentrated elk in certain spots. Like like I've been telling you about the the middle of the hill. 
stuff like that. Before they were spread out more on the hill. You know, now they're, they're they are more concentrated. So I, it's actually kind of easier for me because I'm I first thing I do is I put a half mile radius around the or parallel along with the trail or the you know the trailheads and you know put a radius and, and then I start picking those other spots that these these circles don't fall into. You know, that's outside of that circle. And those are spots I'm going to hit if it's got the, you know the uh, dark timber that I'm looking for. Well, all right. So look, I'm hearing where you're looking for. Let me ask you a question because a lot of times we tell people is the where, where you find elk is where, you know, first you can eliminate where you're not going to find elk. What areas are are you eliminating, or are you eliminating areas immediately to to be able to focus more on some other areas? Well, in Colorado, there's a lot of sagebrush. Mm-hmm. Uh, those those are the first things that you know they make travel across it, but you're not going to find them. Yeah. You know, the, you're not going to find them out there. It, you know, like I say, if, if they get a bunch of push across, that's the only time they're going to see them. Now, I, I do want to put a plug in there, though, that, you know, there's a lot of places, even here in New Mexico, that these elk are learning to bed down in some of those sage flats. Or if there's um, arroyos or drainages cutting through it out there in the middle of those flats, they're bedding in some of those. So, I just want to throw that out there because some people can go, well, I've seen them out there bedded in these areas. And, and I even know there's some places um, out in the flats where I talk about buddies and of, of Montana or some of these that those elk will get out there where there's a junipers or sage and they'll bed out there where, man, it's hard oh. to get to them because they can see you coming a mile away. Well, I agree, but the areas I hunt in Colorado for wilderness areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, wilderness or national forest and so you know most of the time you're away from the private property where a lot of sagebrush is mm-hmm. you know um right. a lot of sagebrush gets a ton of utv traffic um because right. there's, there's roads cutting through it all all across that you know a lot of guys just out riding you know, where i hunt it, it's away from that kind of stuff anyways and so sagebrush for like on top of the uh south basin slopes you know, where they get a lot of sun and in September they're, they're burned to a crisp normally, you know, you know, it's nice that when you get out there and you, you do see them in, in, you know, some yellow and green in the sagebrush, means they got good water that year. Mm-hmm. So, but th- those, you know, th- those aren't spots I'm going to hunt. I'm going to try and, you know, I cross them to get to the darker timber. Um, so, and, and like I said, I don't normally hunt the, uh, the bottom of the creek, all the way in the bottom. I, I pretty much just I follow the sign. You know, if the sign's taking me to one place, that's where I go. Right. So, you know, it, 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 it so much depends on, on boots on the ground and, and reading the sign that you, that's been given to you. So if I, if I was to summarize some of the stuff that I've already heard, though, you are using the bottoms to be able to locate sign to find out if elk are using the area, get, eating the grass or using the water in that area. And then you're going up into the high timber to be able to locate where they're bedding from those same elk that are utilizing those areas. Exactly. You'll find them, you know, you'll find sign down, you know, where, even where they cross the, the, the main trail, you'll find them, mm-hmm. you know, that gives you direction where they're headed, you know? So you kind of follow their, follow their lead and get after them. So what's your favorite calling sequence, bud? I mean, when you are moving through there and you are doing some calling, what, what is, what is the Billy goat's favorite uh, um, go-to sequence? That's kind of your norm until you have to adapt. 
Well, it's, it's normally I'll throw out a locating bugle. Um, normally it won't be. Uh, I, I got a Primos um, bugle tube that does a real good job of casting a long, it carries a long ways. Mm-hmm. Um, that's that's my go-to to start the season and, and you know, throwing out locating bugles. Occasional cow calls, you know, when you're working tight timber. Um, Say that again. And the only reason I asked you, I I just want to make sure that because we're talking about where you're throwing location bugles, like most people would when they come off top of the ridge, but when Mm -hmm. you're working through the dark timber, you change to what? A lot of times I'll change to cow calls Mm -hmm. because, oh, I don't know. I I seem to have more luck for some reason with with cow calling through the darker timber Mm -hmm. as, as opposed to the bugles. I don't know why that is. I couldn't honestly tell you. Um, bugles are good when you get up high on a ridge. You can echo it all the way down through there and get a response. That's great. But your cow call don't carry quite as far as like that, you know? Right. From the top. So I guess that's kind of why I switch because I can, the terrain, and you know, you, you, you can't, you're in tight cover. Your calls don't, don't carry very far. So. I, I got one more question to ask you along that lines, you know, talking about where you're at. What is your favorite altitude to hunt at, or is that varying? I've hunted anywhere from, I think the highest we've hunted was like 11.5 down to 8,000. And uh, most consistently, and we're talking Colorado, mm-hmm. uh, because in Montana, we were only at 7,000 feet right. most of the time, um, or less. Actually, we were at less when we killed the bull. Um, but uh, in Colorado, you're talking normally – between nine and ten and a half of our normal, where we find most of the elk in in September. Mm-hmm. You know, it's funny that people kind of get hung up on an elevation. Right. Um, I remember one year I was sitting at camp down by the creek, and uh, which was at eighty hundred feet at the time. This guy comes down the trail, and he whips out his topomet and he goes, "You know, how do I get here?" And I go, "Why do you want to go there?" And he says, "Well." The guy at the store where I bought my bugle tube says all the elk are 11,000 feet or above. <laughs> yeah. And so I just kind of rolled my eyes and I says, you know, you know how far a hike it is to get there from here? <laughs> he says, well, you don't look too far on the map. Well, I said, you know, you're looking at about a four-mile hike and, you know, you got about 2,000 feet of elevation change to do. I, I'm in good shape. I can do that. <laughs> Two hours later, I see him heading back out. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, okay, you know. Yeah. Like, well, I think the reason I wanted to ask you that though was I was I was actually leading me into I I know you come you live in upstate New York, which has a little bit more elevation, but what's the elevation where you live? Six hundred feet. Six hundred feet. <laughs> you're, you're going from six hundred feet to between eight and eleven five, and I, mm-hmm. that's where I was wanting to to is is. Now I know you're the Billy Goat, dude, but you know uh, uh, how difficult is those or are those first days for you there? And what do you do to prepare for that? Can you prepare for that, or what do you do once you get there in that altitude? Well. It, it, it takes time for your body to adjust, regardless of who you are. Mm-hmm. If you haven't spent time up there, you know, three, four days ahead of time, when you get there, you got to go slow. Slow and steady, drink lots of water. Um, aspirin helps too sometimes. Um, 
and altitude sickness affects everybody differently. I've been very fortunate. It hasn't bothered me too much. I can feel my heart racing, you know, for the first day or two, a little bit of fluttering because it's, it's working a little harder. I can tell. Um, I've had guys that knocked right dead on their butt um, with migraine headaches, you know, and that really kind of killed it for them. But most of the time they got those headaches because they overdid it. Bottom line, they overdid it when they first got there. And hydration is critical. Hydration is, you know, um, I just had a buddy of mine go out there. He never, he's going, he went out there this this last uh, few weeks ago to to, uh, shed hunting. And I gave him some spots to go to. And it was his first trip and he was excited. And I told him, I said, you got to drink at least two to three times the amount of water that you normally would around here on, on covering the same miles. And he got back and he said, I drank almost four times as much water as I normally would drink. And I was still dry. Mm-hmm. It, it, people don't realize how much more water, because the air is so much drier, mm-hmm. which is huge. And that, that, that dry air just sucks the moisture out of your lungs every breath you take. And people don't think about that, but that's where you lose a ton of water weight, just basically by breathing. So, you know, that, that, that's it's such a huge, huge thing to make sure you're extremely hydrated and, and don't go crazy the first day you're out there. You know, take it slow, very slow. So what is slow, Bob? I mean, to Bob the Billy Goat Collins, man, what is slow? I mean, when you're getting out there and, and what does your typical day look like? How does it change from the beginning of the hunt to, you know, let's say, day seven on the type of, you know, how far you're going or, or what you're doing out there? What we normally do is we get out there the first day. Um, when we drive straight through, um, we'll leave, drive all night. We'll get there in the afternoon. We'll, uh, all we do is set up camp and eat and get, get camp, base camp ready. And, you know, we may walk down the bridge or, or a trail or something and just listen the first night, you know, half a mile at the most. Okay. You know, nothing, nothing strenuous, just real slow and steady. Right. You know, we get a nice, good night's sleep. Next morning, next morning you know, you're excited. We wake up before the crack of dawn anyways. Cause my, my clock is two hours ahead of yours. So, you know, so I'm up before the crack of dawn and you know, we'll, we'll, we'll eat a good breakfast that first morning and we'll do a morning hunt. You know, we'll go slow and steady. Won't cover much ground, but just to give our bodies a chance that first day, you know, get, just get a mile maybe in just, just your body needs time to uh, build up those white blood cells that uh, carry the oxygen and so what like i said then we you know we'll go back to camp we'll do the same thing that next evening then the next morning if we're this is day three we'll, you know we'll don't the first day we'll just yeah. we'll just go easy you know yeah and then the second morning we'll go easy again and if we're feeling feeling all right then we'll backpack in come back at lunch you know load up our stuff and go in or we'll wait one more day I don't know how we feel or what kind of signs right there, but like, damn. But it, like I say, it's, it really, you can feel it. You're, you're, you know, you're setting up camp. You're, you just got to go slow, stop, rest. There's, there's no getting around it, Joe. You, you've got to give your body time to adjust. No, you, absolutely. And that's what we try to tell people is pay attention to your body. And different people are going to be different, man. And once you get those migraine headaches, once you start getting that 
nauseous feeling, man, it's not good. And no. know, so sometimes it's better to go easy on the front end than to find yourself having to lay in a tent for a whole day, you know, right. or having to go down in elevation and recover right. in the hotel. Well, that's what happened to my one buddy on one trip. Mm-hmm. He overdid the first day and he ended up going back, took the truck, went back into town, spent the night in the motel because it, uh, Gunnison was like 7,700 feet or 7,800 feet. And we were at 10,5. Right. But he went down there and spent the night. Didn't get much sleep, but he, he did get some and was able to get the migraine to go away. Right. But he lost the day just because he didn't take it slow. Absolutely. Uh, so, you know, it's one of those things, it's, it's, it's one of those things you got to build up. So it's like, you know, it's like, it's a marathon when you're out there, you know, you got to start slow. You don't start off, you know, trying to run, you know, a uh, hundred yard dash, you start <laughs> slow, you start walking, you know, and you, you start know, walking that marathon, you know, and here, I'm going to give a nugget out there too, man, is that, you know, you have all these people and if you're not going to hunt from camp and a lot of people drive to a trailhead and they're passing by two, three miles of incredible elk hunting that's only a mile off the road and sometimes a half mile. I've seen bulls bugling, screaming a half mile that people were driving by. So, you know, what I like about those first couple of days is they force you a little bit to hunt. In other words, slow down because I think so many people are in such a hurry to get to what they think is elk country or where elk should be or what looks elky that they go by a ton of elk. They, they actually walk by elk trying to find elk. And sometimes that, that first day, that, you know, first couple of days of having to slow down, take your time, you're going <laughs> to, you're going to find more things. Let me tell you a story, man. I'm going to tell okay. you Bob, that the one spot that the Chav, uh, Chav is my, my brother-in-law and been my hunting partner for 39 years. And the, the, we have a favorite hunting area that we found by total accident. We were intending to drive 13 miles into this area on mile two. Um, I'm not paying attention because I'm looking at how great the moisture is and stuff and drive a little bit off the two track and, and put my tire in a wet, giant uh, red ants nest that had moisture in it and sunk my truck to the axle and could not get out. So (laughs) here we're only two miles in and we decide we're going to wait till somebody can pull us out, which ended up being three days later. And in that amount of time, we just put our, our tent up and we started making lemonade out of lemons and hunting the area. And lo and behold, found more elk in that area than any place that we had ever been that everybody was driving by. And it's been, um, it's been aces for us for years, man. And uh, it's, it's funny how that happens is sometimes when you're forced to slow down or forced to actually hunt some areas that you might not normally hunt that you might actually walk by, you find a lot of areas that other people are going by. So that's yep. that can be. Oh, I agree. It can be a great thing. Oh yeah, and you'll find that there's so many guys that are in such a big hurry to get to the trailhead. Mm-hmm. You know, and they drive by, like you said, uh, the spot we hunt is one of the drainages that people drive by. One of my favorite places to hunt. They drive by because there's a trailhead. The road kind of forks, and we're right close to that fork, and 
follow the fork one way and follow the fork the other way to the trailheads and we're kind of jump off right there in the middle. Like I was saying before, though, you got to kind of find spots where people push them and where the people aren't going, and that's where you're going to find them. And you, you know what? Um, before I go further, uh, Bob, I want to make sure I tell you, and I want to ask your permission, actually, because, you know, we have an online course, and uh, I would really, I tell you what, I still have that picture in my mind, you running back and forth with a stick, hitting a bunch of trees and doing that that harass cow call. What mm-hmm. a great scenario that is. I mean, uh, I, I'd like to call that the Billy Goat scenario and put that in our camp, if you don't mind. I'd love to. <laughs> no, by all means, Joe. We'll, we'll help somebody. That you, man. Hell, well, you know, I think it. I think that when I have never heard that. I mean, I do a lot of different scenarios, um, but I've never done. I've never done one of a, a cow being corralled by a young bull, and I'm. I'm still, man. It's in my head. I can see it, and I, I not only see you doing it, which makes me smile and laugh, <laughs> but I can see. I can see the young bull doing that as well, man. And uh, I can see that cow like leave me a dog on alone. So I, I think mm-hmm. that's a I think that's a pretty cool thing. I just wanted to throw that out there before we went further, man. By all means, Joe, I help somebody. I think I'm that's, all for it. I think that's the nugget of the of the so far of of this uh, show. So I just wanted to make sure I put that out there, man. So we we were talking about taking it easy on the first day and stuff, and and we were talking about that altitude and and how to read your body, which is huge, but. But, you know, uh, like I said in the beginning of the show, there's a lot of people 20, 30 years old. So I'm, I'm getting ready to be 60. I turned 60 in November and I guide guys all year long. And I guide guys that are half my age. Um, and sometimes, you know, 15 years, my junior or, or a little bit more that struggle when they get up into the hills. And, you know, here you're 66 and you're still hitting that, 2,500 foot change in altitude, you're the billy goat, man. And I guarantee you, friends ain't calling you that because uh, you, you're easy to follow in the mountains. What do you do to make sure that you're ready for that elk season every year? Grinders tuning in. Thank you for listening to the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Podcast. Our goal is to share our knowledge and help you flatten that learning curve so that you too can have some of the very same incredible experiences that have given all of us here at Elk Bros a lifetime of memories. If you like what you hear or see, you can get all of this information plus so much more from our Base Camp Elk Hunting Training Camp, the first in a series of online courses from our Blue Collar Elk Academy. Our base camp training camp allows me to use my coaching style and share almost 40 years of elk hunting experiences successfully hunting elk on public lands as well as over 20 years guiding hunters of all ages and experience levels. This course will be like nothing you have ever experienced in concept and structure using success-based coaching techniques that will elevate your confidence and skill sets. Our camp will prepare you specifically from that final moment most in your control, those final minutes or seconds the elk is in front of you, backwards through each step and level, allowing you to see, visualize, understand, and relate every coaching point to what lies ahead, the next step, the next thought process, the next success. Because, y'all, you've already been there. You know what it looks like. 
By tapping my 30 years of teaching and coaching experience, our camps are developed considering multiple learning modes with text, visuals, audio, as well as video. And Basecamp will benefit those new to elk hunting all the way to the 10 to 15 year vet. So if you are looking for that one thing to help you fill that tag this year, invest in the most important piece of equipment there is, you and your elk hunting knowledge. You can find the Blue Collar Elk Hunting Academy and the Base Camp Training Camp at elkbros.com. That's E-L-K-B-R-O-S.com. Keep dreaming of the screaming, believing and achieving, and most of all, keep grinding. Well, I, originally I used to do just put the pack on and go up and down the, uh, the, the small ski hill here. Not huge, you know. Uh, and that was my go-to thing for years. But as my body got older and I started hunting with different guys, especially my new partner, uh, he, he's big into marathon. He's, uh, he's an ultra marathon runner. Mm-hmm. Um, guys, two years ago, he did a 65 mile race one day, 65 miles trail race, no less. You know, where he, he probably covered 5,000 feet during that trail race. So I got into to, I got into the run. I mean, I ran track in high school, but I was a sprinter. I was never, I run a mile. Are you kidding me? Come on. I got short, squatty legs. That don't work. <laughs> but I started running. Uh, and without exaggeration, the first, I decided I had to start running. So the first trip I made run, I made down the road about a quarter of a mile and thought I was going to die of a heart attack. But <laughs> I, 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 I walked. And I jog a little, walk and jog. And it took me probably a month to get to the point where I could jog two miles without stopping. And now I now I do trail runs. Um, I I I like the trails because they got hills in them. Mm-hmm. There's roots, there's logs. You know, there's obstacles. Right. So you're you're just not putting one foot in front of the other. You got to pay attention to the ground. You know, it's constantly changing. Uh, the trails are dirt, so they're easier on your body. It's in the woods. It's cooler. Uh, that that has made that was a big improvement on my uh, cardiovascular, you know, health. So you think it was better than putting a back on uh, pack on your back and going up and down the hills? It, it complemented it. Okay. I still do both. I okay. still do both. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, I got forty pounds in my pack that I. Well, I'm only 155 pounds. I'm not a big guy. I'm five five. Um, I got forty pounds in my pack. So I, what's that? 155 pounds. 155 pounds, and I'm five foot five. Wow! And I'm short, short and squatty. Um, I got 40 pounds in my pack right now. I hopefully I'll have it up to about 60 by the time season gets here. Uh-huh. Um, but but they complement each other. They, you know, you're, you're building uh, you're building power climbing the hills with with your pack on. Absolutely. You know? uh-huh. um, you're you're with this. You know, your cardiovascular system doesn't get as good a workout with the pack on as it does with running. Um, now, I, I will I, now, if you don't mind me, because I, I do coach and I do train, you yep. know, you take that pack and you find a, you know, a, a steep little 50 yard hill on there and you go at that super hard going up and then go back down. I mean, go 20 seconds. Oh yeah. And then you, you know, walk down and then go turn around, go 20 seconds hard, right back up it again. Buddy, yes, sir. You can still tax that cardio pretty strong. I just want to throw that out there for people. Oh, that... No, I agree 100%, Joe. Yeah. Um, the only reason I don't push it quite as hard is um, 
because I got arthritis and, yep. and if, yeah. if when I, if I try to, you know, uh, push it too hard with the heavy weights. Right. Good point. It, it, it you know, my, my arthritis flares up and it slows me down. So, so it's kind of counterproductive then. How much um, weight are you putting in your pack, Bob? Uh, right now I got 40 pounds. Okay. Uh, like I said, by August, I should have 60 pounds. I don't like going more than 30% of my body. No, you're right. good point. Because again, it starts tearing at those joints and yeah, Exactly. And, you know, and so, and, and what, and, and if I want a, a, a cardiovascular workout with, with my pack on, I'll drop it down to 15, 20 pounds. Good. Yes. Also, okay, good. you know, I, and, and I do switch it up. I take weights in and out, you know, uh, this week I may do two, two hill climbs with the 40 pounds and, and next week I'll drop it down to 15 pounds and do, uh, you know, a more a faster pace, there, which I can do with, with the lighter weights and it won't hurt my joints like it would if I can try to do that with the 40 pounds. Right. So that, that's, that's, that's why I don't push it with the heavier weights. It's, it's, it's all, um, I want to keep my body in, in as good a shape as possible with the least amount of pain, you know? And, uh, so you got to kind of listen to your body and, you know, listen to what it's telling you, you know, and make adjustments as you go. That's like the fourth time we've said that. So I hope people are really paying attention because there's sometimes people will, and, and I'll tell you a, a day of rest sometimes can be better than three days of training, uh, in that letting your body recover. So, you know, what you're saying, Bob, there, I'm, I just want to, you know, I hope people are listening to that, that you pay attention to your body. If you start to feel uh, an injury coming on, you need to take it easier on it. And there's other cross things that you can do sometimes without putting that same stress on it. You know, you might be able to go ride a bike instead of doing a hill or something like that. There's other things. Exactly. You can um, but you need to pay attention to your body. When your body speaks to you that something's getting ready to happen, uh, pay yep. attention because it can really put a damper on your training. Well, that, that, yeah, your training, your hunt, the whole nine yards. You, Absolutely. You, that, that is so huge. And, and mixing it up, too, is, is huge, in my opinion, also. Like I say, you know, you know I, I'm not a big bike rider. It hurts my butt. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but you can still just go for a walk, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. You don't have to run. You don't have to carry heavy weights. Mm-hmm. You can still just walk a hill, you know, you know, you, you take the dogs for a walk. There's so many things you can do. You know, you, you can get a, you know, elliptical, which is, you know, I got one. I hate it only for the simple fact. I don't like staying put in one spot. It's just my personality. You know, I just right. yeah. I want to go, you know, like when I'm out there in the season, I, I don't want to go, you know, I don't want to sit one spot, you know, but it's, it, you can do it. I've had guys that came out that, you know, were in good shape and all they did was elliptical, but they pushed it hard and it was easier on their joints. So I'm going to skip to something else, man, because I, you know, I, I, man, I'm pegging this out of stater, all those people that are coming in that are doing uh, the DIY. That's a, you know, I hear so much, um, about nutrition and look, as a coach, I understand nutrition. I understand you know, the importance of putting fuel in your body. Um, but I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many things these days. There's like people are doing supplements instead of food and this and that. And well, is there anything special that you do food wise um, when, when you're up in the mountains or uh, wh- what is your go-to man? What's it look like when you're there? Well, I'm in the mountains. We actually, my, my, my partner has gotten to the point where he's, He's been doing a great job of making his own dehydrated meals for us. Mm-hmm. Um, they're actually better. Um, 
you know, I could always get him in on here and, and he could give you a, a real good uh, lesson on that. On how to make um, dehydrated meals? Yeah. Shoot, we're on, man. I, I know we have people that would love to hear how to make their yep. own dehydrated meals. And, uh, you know, and like the cereal he makes up in the morning, it's, it's like a, it's an oatmeal based cereal, but he also adds a lot of almonds, uh, and, uh, like coconut. He'll add a bunch of stuff into it. And I'll tell you what, man, little powdered milk. You know, we open up the bag for hot, hot boiling water in there, mix it up. Man, it's, 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 that's, it's a great, you know, I, like I said, we, maybe we should be, set up a time and, and I could get Ron, my partner on here. And, uh, yeah, can, uh, let's do that. And just do that. And, uh, I'm, I'm sure he's more than he's more than happy to do that. He's a he's a great guy. Um, if if uh, he would like, you know, if if he does not mind, I would love to have maybe his recipe mix and and what it takes to you know. I mean, he can explain the dehydration on the show, but if we have people that have like the recipe for that, that might be awesome, man. And we could put it on our site. Okay. Well, I'll talk to Ron and see what we can do about getting hooked up with that. And, yeah, you know, that would be awesome, man. He's uh, I'm, I'm like I said, uh, you know how hard good hunting partners are to come by. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I've been to a lot of guys, and uh, so I'm gonna plug a lot of guys get overwhelmed when they get out there and they don't want to do it again. Yeah, so have you have you heard of our hunting buddy that we have on our website? Yes, I've heard about the hunting buddy platform you guys got out there now. To me, it's it's an excellent idea because you're putting like minded people together, you know, yeah, it's a dating site for elk hunting. <laughs> so for anybody listening that doesn't know about it, you go to elkrose.com and uh, there's a link to get to our hunting buddy website, which is a free service. Doesn't cost you anything, man. You can go there and you can put your own profile on for the type of hunter you are, where you like to hunt, how you like to hunt, the style you like, the comfort level you like, everything and try to find like-minded people, a, a hunting partner, if you're having difficulty doing that. And I, we hear so many times, like you were saying, Bob, it's so hard to find a good hunting partner, man, that uh, I, that's why we did that. So I, that's just a good plug for that. So people can go do that, well, but go ahead. Well, that's, 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 such, that's such a great idea because like I said, I've been through a lot of guys that, you know, they, they talk the talk, but you get them out there, they, right. they don't walk the walk, you know? But that's why so, it's critical to make this profile as honest as possible because exactly. when you go on there, it's it's not about how great or how weak or anything you are. It's about being specific so that you can find people that work within your expectations. Because exactly, and that's that's I think that's well, with that being said, right now everybody should be getting close to find out who uh, what license they've drawn this year. Yes. Um, and, you know, and that's a talk you need to have with your partner, especially if you've never been out there with them before or you've only been out there once, or, you know, or you haven't been out there together. Mm-hmm. You, you need to sit down and have an honest conversation with that person, uh, what your expectations are and what you expect from him and he should expect from you because, you know, you're, you're married to that person kind of, you know, for that time <laughs> that you're out there. And, you know, you, your life may depend on it, you know, you know, you that's why right there, man, you, you are putting your life in so, and you know, it might sound dramatic, but dude, wait till it happens, man. I mean, you could be in a situation where your life is dependent on your partner. Absolutely. Yep. And, 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 and it has happened. Uh, yes. One year, uh, Ron and I got out there and we left camp. It was raining a little bit. Well, uh, we, we kept pushing on, pushing on. Next thing you know, it's the rain turned to snow. 
I'll tell you what, we were soaking wet. Well, luckily we found a tarp. Made, I was able to get a fire going. Ron didn't have anything. He didn't have the proper fire starting equipment with him. Mm-hmm. But I always carried it with me. So we, we got the fire going. And, and that's really what saved our butts. The fact that we, you know, we were able to get warm. Yes. It, it got miserable. It snowed. It was a wet, heavy snow. About killed ourselves getting out of there because it was slippery at all get up, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So. And people do not realize, like, you know, you're here talking to me right now. So, like, well, how bad could that situation have been? You know, it only takes a tiny bit of difference, a turnaround of a situation that is not good to go horribly bad. And that fire that you had <laughs> um, could be the alternate ending, you know, created an alternate ending to another possible story. So oh, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was a wake up call. Yes. Yes. And you know, we were back probably two miles from our camp, which was down the hill, about 1600 feet from a truck. Mm-hmm. So we were a long ways away from, from, you know, the truck and even, even camp, we were a long ways away. And since you bring up camp, where do you like to camp? Do you like to camp high where you're walking out at that high level? Do you guys camp down low and drive up to some place? Where do you like to camp? My my preference is camping low and hiking up. Um, the morning thermals are always working with you. The evening thermals are always working with you. Um, when you're tired, it's easier to go downhill than it is uphill. Um, but with that being said, I have done uphill. I have camped up top um, when, you know, options weren't available to us down below. But the, the downhill is by, by far my favorite. Okay. And, uh, and the other thing was when we were talking about the dangerous situation, do you guys carry any kind of communication device for you, with you, Bob? No, we, we've talked about that, um, but we, we never have. Because mm-hmm. normally um, – we hunt together pretty much. When we don't hunt together, we know where the other one's going to be. You right. know, right. Um, you know, uh, we we've established. You know, you're going to head up into this drainage here. I'm going to head up this drainage here. And, you know, so we're never really more than maybe a mile away from each other, but we know where Keller's going to go, and we know that we can follow the stream back down to camp. You know, so how follow would- the ravine back down to camp. How much does your hunting partner weigh? How much what? How much does your hunting partner weigh? How much does he weigh? Yeah. Uh-huh. Oh, he's he's six foot and probably weighs 190. Yeah, so about 200 pounds, right? So mm-hmm. you and you and your hunting partner are a lot like me and Chav because I'm I'm 220, you know, six foot 220. Um mm-hmm. generally during the hunt season I get down to about 215, you know. Um, but I'm, I'm in that over 200 chavs, five foot seven, 145, 150 pounds. And, you know, even though we are there and there's somebody that is there, you know, if something happens to chav, I can pretty much get him out of there. If something happens to me, it, and it's a, a life-threatening situation, man, I, I feel sorry for that dude. Cause he's up the Creek without a paddle trying to deal with me. You know what I mean? <laughs> oh yeah, it, it's definitely a different situation, uh, different set of shoes, you know, with yeah. each of us, you know. Yeah. But uh, you know, you 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 
clan with uh, as far as safety goes, you know. Yeah, right. Uh, that's why I got to hunt smart, you know. You, Absolutely. You, you can't be you can't be a risk taker, and you know. Right. And and, and take ch- unnecessary chances that you know puts either one of you in jeopardy. Right. Yeah, I just uh, I, I was curious about what you guys' plan was, and because you know, uh, it, you're right. When you have a partner, at least they can go for help, unless it's a situation where you need you know help a whole lot faster. So I just right. think that's a that's a thought process for people out there. Because do you get cell service where you hunt? No. Yeah, I and that's and uh, you know that's one thing as a safety tip. Mm-hmm. Before you head up in the mountains, before you even leave, go in the mountains before you leave home, you should already have uh, Google the nearest hospital or nearest place you can get help. Cause you don't want to be trying to do it, trying to figure out where you got to go coming out of the mountains. You know, right. you just want to be able to get there as soon as possible. That's a great um, point. Emergency you know? If you've already got that, you know, like plugged in your phone or something, right. You know, uh, or, you know, at least written down so you can ask, you know, t- 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 tell your phone, you know, when, once you get reception, where to go, mm-hmm. you know, that, 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 you know, in those situations, every second counts. Mm-hmm. So you don't want to be driving the wrong way looking for help. Right. You know, absolutely great point, man, because, you know, it's funny. Most of us will have the number for um, either somebody to be able to pack out an animal or um, the local processor, but we don't have numbers for emergency situations, you know. Right. Your urgent care or hospital, wherever yeah. the nearest place, you know. Yeah, absolutely great point, man. Yeah, this is this has been tremendous, man, Bob. I have so enjoyed this conversation. But in uh, but what I would like to do before we get out of here is is I know that um, you've given us a couple of nuggets. You've given us some of your favorite things or uh, or, or tip. Um, I'd like for you to ask. I'd like to ask you to give us one other favorite tip um, to anybody from um, Bob the Billy Goat uh, to help people out on on their hunt coming to see well seeing how we talked about how guys are afraid to get lost it's huge country mm-hmm. this, this is a this is a huge tip where to keep you knowing where you're going one right. of the biggest things i do is when you're hiking always turn around and look where you came from yeah good point because when you're going back the train looks totally different and here's a, here's a, here's a here's a story to go along with that me and my partner we cut this this hill. We got this huge rock, my other boulder, like about fifteen feet, you know. But we're going up the hill. You got to remember. So I told I said, Jim, remember that rock because we're, we're going to turn and cut down the hill there to get to camp. Right. Okay, Bob. Oh, we go a few more ridges. You know, nothing much happened that day. It was a slow day. We come back. Now we're coming in from the uphill side of this rock. Now this time, so all of the debris and you know builds up on the back side so you can only see about three foot of that rock i go jim i go all right there's a rock we need to cut down he goes, oh ah, what's wrong with you he said that rock was 15 foot the jim that's a rock no it's not about the jim go down the other side and he said you know you went on the other side of the rock and there it was it's like how do you know that i said jim i stopped every time i stopped to catch a breath i'm not looking at you see how you're doing i'm looking to see what the train looks behind me because when I'm coming out, I want to know what it looks like. And that's the biggest tip I can give you as far as not getting lost. There you go. It's a great one, too. Because, you know, I think a lot of people forget about the importance of woodsmanship. And, 
you know, having grown up in the swamps of the Carolinas, one thing that we really, really learned to do, because everything looks the same. I mean, it's not like you have a slope of a hill or big boulders. It just all looks the same. And you right. just really learn to pay attention to the ground or objects or anything that can mark something and what it looks like behind you. Because you're exactly right. We see where we're going. You need to look at where you've been. And that's a tremendous, tremendous tip, Bob. And, uh, you know, um, uh, are you planning on hunting this year? Oh yeah, we'll be in Colorado. Yeah, and now um, remember your your waypoint where you're going to be needs to go on our our site. And uh... <laughs> not a problem if you can get it to there. Get it, get your butt up there where I'm at. I'll, I'll see what I can do about getting you on the bull. <laughs> That's awesome, man. We'll be in Colorado too. The elk pros are taking the show on the road, man, this year. Uh, so. Uh, well, I wish you the best of luck. It, 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 it's going to be a little tougher, I think, than what you're normally normally dealing with in New Mexico. And, and but, you uh, know what? I, I keep hearing that. Everybody's telling me that. And I'm relishing the challenge, man, because uh, that's just the kind of person that, that I am. So I'm excited about that, Bob. I'm excited about uh, go giving it that, that effort and just grinding at it. And, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll bump e into each other in the hills up there, you know. And uh, I, I just want to thank you, man. I've enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed our conversation the other day. And most people... Um, if they don't know, they can go back and I think it's um, episode one of failure points of the series that we're doing. In fact, most people, our series is not done. When you're hearing this, most likely our series is not done because uh, starting June 1st, I, I actually am going on a um, I'm, I'm going on a special what I call dark month from elk hunting. In other words, I've dedicated that month entirely to family, my wife and everything, because I'm always so uh, elk on the brain that I wanted to give them the same amount of, it's not even close to the same amount of attention. But, you know, <laughs> That's why I'm laughing, Joe. My yeah. wife understands. She doesn't like it, but she doesn't. I think she yeah. understands. And, and it was just a way of setting time apart to dedicate to them to say how important they are to me. So um, if, you know, if you haven't heard the rest of that series, um, it's still to come. We've got a few things that we made sure that we had recorded. This is one of those shows that we wanted to make sure that you got, because this is tremendous. And Bob, you know, when I first talked to you, it was because of the shout out that you sent in with a tip from uh, the old Billy Goat. And we We've even talked and we're going to continue to include some of those. If you send them in, man, I tell you what, I mean, we're all about helping each other and you send them in, we'll stick them on our shows and we'll put those in there. And I enjoyed that first conversation so much. And, you know, hunters, you can tell right away when you're cut from the same cloth, when you're the same type of people and the things that you're passionate about. And after our first conversation, I was like, man, I just, I wanted to get you on the show, wanted to have this conversation, wanted to share that out of state experience and that build of knowledge and, and let people hear things in a different perspective and, and, and kind of be the person to get to ask the questions. And uh, I know sometimes I sound like a lawyer with leading questions, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> you, you know, uh, there was so much great information and I tell people, man, I don't care how much hunting experience. It's just like coaching. I don't care how much coaching experience you have. If you can go to as many, 
many workshops as possible, as many seminars as possible, listen to as many podcasts as possible. If anything, it will reassure that you're doing a lot of the correct things or just, you know, reinforces what you are doing. But man, you might pick up that one nugget. Just that one little thing that could be the difference this season. And I tell you what, man, the Billy Goat scenario that's going on to our, uh, <laughs> on to our uh, uh, academy is, uh, is one of those nuggets that I think. And, I'm, I, you know, and there's been a few others, man, that, that I've heard here tonight. And I think there's been a lot that a lot of people are going to relate to. So, Bob, thank you so much for taking the time out today and, and just uh, sharing the time with us. Joe, it's pleasure's been all mine. Anytime I can talk about elk hunting, it, it makes my day. Uh, like I said, I told you, I live for elk hunting. It, 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 it's what keeps me young, you know, keeps me motivated. I got a passion for it, and, and I'm, 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 I'm so, I've been so blessed in my life. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And, and uh, all the way know, from Barry, New York, doing this. Yep. You can find it on the map. You can Google it, so you can find Barry, New York, but it's just a little township. But, uh, <laughs> Uh, like I said, I've been so blessed that I, I can still do it at my age. I'm I'm so thankful I can give back to people. Um, awesome, man. The knowledge I've learned, I can relate the experiences I've had, and hopefully it helps somebody. You know, yep. hopefully it keeps them safe, helps them keep from not being, being lost, uh, helps them not to, uh, you know, get out there and, and do things right so they don't hurt themselves to start with. Absolutely, you know, man. If I help one person, it was well worth it, Joe. Uh, you you bet thank you so much bud and to all those people listening until the next time we get there you guys you keep believing and achieving but most of all keep dreaming of the screaming we'll see you next time all right bye see ya bye Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. A life that has the stories to back it. A life to be proud of. It's a Winchester life. Yeah, baby. 6-8 Western. Oh, I'm old there, baby. Right there. Tune in every Tuesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.